happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We just talked a little bit about it, but uh, we're going to do a really appealing subject now <laughs> in, in honor of the Thanksgiving holiday. But you know what? I'm just, a, we're not going to have shame about it. Everybody, it's, you know, it's life. Um, it is, it is. And we actually, I ended up having a conversation with my family about this episode at the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> and nice. we have a rule in my family that you're not supposed to bring up any of the seven motifs of disgust. Which is this like wow? Your family sociological. Is just a we we had picture. to like set that rule at a certain point because uh, if you could imagine with like two teenage boys in the house, there are some things we were interested in talking about that weren't perhaps the best dinner table conversation. I mean, I was it phrased the way you just made it. Like, did your parents come to you and like I want to teach you about the seven areas of disgust and how you can? Because I just for one, Michael, don't know that reference, so. Is it, it it is a reference from like a '90s psychology paper, so I w- there's no reason I you mean, or that's any other level, should know that. That's the level of your home life that just paints a picture. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it it really does. So there's seven layers, seven layers, like so there, a dip. There are seven mo seven motifs, motifs so like themes of disgust. And the best part about it is when my brother learned about this, at some point he was having a conversation with one of his teachers at school about it. And when he was having that conversation, the only motif he could remember was bestiality, oh, which paints a whole different picture. Oh my God. <laughs> like talking with your, with your teacher. I mean, that has to be in an etiquette book somewhere of like, what's not acceptable to speak at dinner about. Are politics a motif of disgust? They are not. They should be. In these these days, <laughs> can add to eight. Uh, some of them are like human waste, um, envelope violations, which is like people getting in your personal space in a way that's like really uncomfortable. Um, bestiality, obviously. <laughs> that uh, seems like blood that seems gore. like a right turn. That seems like a very specific creep vibe in the corner of disgust range. Yeah, but. It's the fun one to mention because it is that. Okay. What else is there? I'm trying to remember. Um, I'll I'll see if I can find it on our break and I can bring back the. Wow, the rest I love of that. That's the two. one your brother remembered. What did the teacher think? She had some questions at the next parent teacher conference. Oh, oh no! Who wrote this paper that your family found it? Your parents found it. Um, I can't remember, but they were doing research with like undergraduates in the Philadelphia region and they needed some way to like, like categorize different disgust responses. And so they generated this sort of seven motifs or seven categories of disgust. Wow. Um, I need, but my mom was like writing about it at some point. I need more knowledge. I will see. I, I have the article buried somewhere in my email inbox. So I will see if I can find it and we can dive in a little bit deeper. So how did that go? You guys were talking about trash at the dinner table. Your parents were like, this is unacceptable. Read this paper to know what you can't speak about anymore at the dinner table. Or were they like, here's a summary of this paper. By the way, you should read it. Um, More like my my mom sort of... Because I'm going to be honest with you, Michael. I've never been quoted literature by like secondary school <laughs> intellectuals as a way of like adjusting my teenage rebellion so this is just a very interesting <laughs> breakdown of different parenting styles really 
Yeah, for sure. I don't have like an exact memory of the first time we were introduced to the concept. But I think the idea was like my mother was writing something and so told us about this idea that there were seven motifs of disgust. And then at a certain point, we must have been bringing one of them up at the dinner table. And so she referenced this thing that she had told us. And she was like, remember when we when we talked about the seven motifs of disgust? In my mind. Right now you're talking about one. And I would we like should not talk stop. about that at the dinner table. I really liked the idea that they introduced this topic to you when you were like four years old. <laughs> Little intellectual Michael, who is just potty trained, was like, mm-hmm, I should do some work on that. <laughs> anyway, we're just going to jump in there. And once again, don't listen to this if you're queasy and you don't like learning about things having to do with the human body. Yeah. Because some people are weird about different areas, too. Like, some people are fine with certain topics, but other people, like, I know some friends that are like, don't ever talk to me about eyeballs or anything having to do with the eye. I don't want to think about anyone putting a contact in or near their eye. I don't want to think about eye drops. Like, they're just totally freaked by that kind of phobia-induced stuff, I guess. That is wild. And some people, um, I think teeth is the same thing. Teeth and mouth stuff. Mm-hmm. They just, the dentist freaks them out to a level that they can't handle it. And it can be very triggering, I think, for some folks. Which, like, is not the case with me. But I don't know. No, same. But right, we'll have to update our content warnings for this episode away from I the I feel like we just ones. did it. <laughs> we, we're, we're not going to live in this territory for very long. So I think it's fine. I think we covered it. Shall we get started? Yeah, let's do it. I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language. I'm ready for all things toilette. Yes. So as the famous book from all of our childhood said, everybody poops. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> universal human experiences, which means it's also a historical experience. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of curious because obviously like the history of the toilet, as we know, only goes back a couple of hundred years. So I was sort of curious, like, how did people deal with waste? Well, is it... Okay. Or wait... Mm, you'll get there. I'll wait. I sometimes ask questions too soon. So you keep doing you. Okay. <laughs> um, waste is always a problem when you get people together. <laughs> like, dealing with that as, like... Like, if you're one person in the woods, it's pretty easy to just, like, do your business, dig a little hole, cover it up, or, or like, you don't even really have to worry about it. But once you start gathering people in groups for you know, farming communities or any sort of like settled society, it becomes really like managing, for lack of a better word, everybody's poop is a problem because there's a lot of it. And if you're living in the same place, it's either going to be around you or you have to do something. So the second we get domesticated, we're going to have more issues. Okay. Exactly. And that's like not even dealing with the fact that like all of the animals we domesticate also produce a lot of waste that you have mm-hmm. to do something with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is, in a lot of ways, one of the big drivers of, like, infrastructure. It's, what do you do with everybody's poo? And so there's, like, a couple of different ways people approach this. Um, the earliest known sort of what we might understand as plumbing system originates in 
the Indus Valley in Northwest India around like 2000-ish BCE. Whoa, okay. Right. So like a lot earlier than I thought. Yeah, I would say anywhere we get into like 3000 BCE, I'm I'm genuinely unclear on what kind of people those are. You know what I mean? Like, are we fully like in small cities and there's empires and stuff or are we i'm I'm just unclear yeah so like i think as like a reference point like ancient egypt is thoroughly a thing at this point mm. so it's it's sort of in a similar world so like some places have fairly complex like large like large-ish cities okay uh and other places are still in the like solid like early farming stage bronze and age? Like, hunter gathering where are stage. we like bronzy i think we are uh, i don't know any other ages post... stone and bronze. <laughs> are there more i don't know it's been a while since like world history yeah we're solid bronze age right now nailed it also can we just like can we just all get together and just get rid of the bc ac current era before era like let's just zero it out you know, I don't know what is the start of the calendar, but I hate the backwards negative number. I get it. I understand it. I understand why I exist. Get off my back. I just would like the recap. <laughs> but whatever. It's Duly not going to happen. It's never going to happen. So. No, I think we're pretty solidly stuck with it at yep, this point. We're into it. Um, okay, so yeah. India makes some plumbing. Yep, and they're... It's like uh, terracotta, so um, pottery um, made in sort of like interlocking small pipes with the idea being that there was like a room in the back of wealthy houses where you would basically use the bathroom and then use some water to wash the waste through these pipes to carry it away from the house, usually to like a river or another body of water, which would then hopefully take it away from Gravity helps, I assume. So there has to be some like terrain with which to help and at this point i'm sure like irrigation and plumbing go hand in hand so like to water the crops you have to figure out how to get water in and sometimes out so yeah so it's like similar technologies exactly um and they also all play together in a way that maybe is like a little less comfortable which is like fertilizer baby yep people haven't super figured out like how germs work yet and so one thing that's no, so it's a pretty constant theme that, like, the, the systems people use to get their drinking water are also often very closely tied to the systems that they use to get rid of their waste. And that's, it a, is that's wild. been true until really recently. It, it is wild to me that people, like, what did they think happened? Like, your brain knows that that should go away because it smells bad. But I guess they genuinely just didn't know that if you also ate it, it would be bad. Like, if it got into your system, it would be bad. Yeah, and I think too, I think part of it is like a lot of people like drank less, like you wouldn't just necessarily like drink straight water in the same way. So you like would brew beer with it, or like some other beverage. And so you weren't necessarily like, always engaging with the water at its source. And even if you were right, like as long as the water itself doesn't actively like, look like it has poop in it, it could have germs in it, but you're not going to know. Yeah, it's genuinely like the scale of microscopic. Like, we live in a world where microscopic has always existed. They yeah. knew, like, there's things that you cannot see that exist that can harm you. Always been true in my life. Always be true. But to genuinely go from, like, 
miasma theory. Do you know about miasma theory versus mm-hmm. germ theory? Which is kind of interesting because it's the miasma has a lot to say about ger- like there is a thought of germs existing in the air, which is fair to say, but the scale was wrong. So they thought yeah. it was just polluted air would overtake a city and that would bring the plague or cholera or whatever disease kind of would infiltrate. But they didn't think humans necessarily had a part in that. It was just like air would come in that was bad and would go out that was bad. Yeah, and in a way it's kind of cool that like terrifying, but we sort of come back to that, right? Like we're now sort of fixated on like our air circulation and air purification and like all of those things. That's why, yeah. Especially right now, it's like they weren't totally off base, you know? It's just like the air is also interacting in your little ecosystem as a human. The air you're breathing out is impacting the air around you. And at such a level, and also they weren't dealing with cities of the scale that we are that can make smog and fog and all that. Okay, so terracotta pipes. Yep. Um, And that's about as good as as it's going to get for like a really long time. For basically anywhere else for a for a chunk of time uh you're gonna be pooping in some version of a hole in the ground that's that's basically that you bury? the option that you like cover up sometimes like you genuinely would just move the outhouse right yeah uh if you had an outhouse some uh, that's in some ways like a fairly recent invention um and we'll get we'll get to the various permutations of that particular version of things but first i want to pop over to egypt which there's so around the similar time that sort of proto in indoor plumbing is happening in the indus valley egypt doesn't have as much water does have a lot of sand though uh anyone who's a cat owner knows that sand does a fairly good job of dealing with waste in that way um and so in ancient egypt they would use what were effectively like large litter boxes where you would use like a certain area of sand and then either bury that or have people carry away the sand with the waste in it to somewhere else because there wasn't water to use to sort of flush things away. And so the sand was the more plentiful of those resources. Ancient Rome, kind of sort of a middle ground, like they have running water, the aqueduct system that linked the cities to water meant that there was a fairly robust sort of sewage system. Uh, But the way you went about sort of accessing that was very often with these large public restrooms where, you know, 20 to 50, basically like there'd be benches around the edge and you would just go in and do your business. No dividers, just like big open space was very often like a, like a social setting where you'd, you know, get to talk about the news and chat with people and check in. Um, but it was also like a a dicey experience. Like a lot of bathrooms that they've found have engravings to the god of luck on it for protection um, because there is the risk of getting bitten by things that would live in the sewers because you're just sitting over the top of the sewer. There is also occasionally methane explosions in the bathroom again because there's like all of this methane building up in the sewers and if someone you know hits a spark somehow that methane's just gonna catch on fire and then uh not good for certain parts of your exposed anatomy at that moment Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, Roman bathrooms. Yeah, not good. How many wild, how many wild west dudes were in the privy with a cigar and it just blew up? I would have to imagine a non-zero number. So, so many. There were too many drunk smoking people for that to not happen. Because as you said, they're not drinking water back then either. So it is really, it's a dangerous game you're playing if you're using the bathroom in ancient Rome. And again, like that, and and like Roman toilets were about as fancy as Europeans are going to get for a while. Like once the Rome falls, Europeans are basically back to like using holes in the ground. Um, so in medieval towns, there would be communal cesspits where you would bring your chamber pot from the night and dump your waste there. Um, and basically like anytime people gathered in groups, particularly like large towns or cities, you would just have these like big collections of human waste. Uh, sometimes you would just cover them up when you were done. Other times uh, you would pay people to come in and take that waste away uh, with shovels and carts. It was not a particularly... It's genuinely... It's genuinely that bit in Monty Python. Where they're bringing out their dead, but it's like, replace that with poop. It's exactly that. Uh, And... uh, Yep, and it just, like, it would smell, and oftentimes, like, in London, for example, they would collect it and then go dump it in the Thames, and then they would bathe in the Thames at the end of the day. So you're just, like bathing in the river in which you've just dumped all this poop. Like we really we didn't we really just didn't understand things at this point. And that's sort of one of the, like the more interesting like I in a little bit, yeah. The 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 great the great stink. Okay, okay, okay. I'll save it. Yes. Okay, great. I have a different yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um but so this issue with what do you do with all this poop in cities turns out to be Like, there's a solution for that rather than just, like, dumping all of it. And it's this, like, and you sort of alluded to this, like, farmers need fertilizer for their crops. And waste is a really good fertilizer because we don't use, like, all of the nutrients in the food that we eat. So oftentimes our waste is very nutrient rich with the exact kind of things that you need for food to grow. And so often, in particularly in places like uh, Japan or China, or particular parts of Europe, people would actually sort of trade agricultural goods for waste. And so farmers would come into the city and they would have food. And in return for their food, the city dwellers would trade them their poop. And then the farmers would take that back out into the country. Yeah. And so it actually, it works from like an environmental perspective really well because it, it it does something productive with that waste. And it means the farmers don't have to figure out like something else. And this time there's nothing else to use for fertilizer. Like, you're using animal poop or you're using human poop or you're not fertilizing your fields. And so it's sort of this this very positive symbiotic relationship. And in some places it would get to the point where the poop was so valuable that people would actually have to pay, like someone would pay you for the privilege of taking your poop away. Um, and like in Japan, for example, there were some landlords who would actually like subsidize the rent of their buildings by selling the waste from their buildings. And if you're some of your roommates or something moved out, your rent would actually go up to make up for the lack of waste that other people in your building were producing. So basically like, wow, they just use poop to subsidize wow. rental costs. Yeah. 
And it's just, you know, it's one of these things where like you think like poop is poop, but there was actually like gradations of poop. And so uh, waste. There's a class. Yes. Yes, there is. So waste from wealthier people (laughs) was worth more money because they were eating a more varied and richer diet. So there were more nutrients. No, they weren't. They were eating garbage. I instantly go to like the dietary concerns I had about Henry VIII's court. It was bad. Right. It is it like it's not healthy, but they're consuming a lot of meat and a lot of fish, which means their waste is really rich in those kind of nutrients, rather than peasants who are eating a lot less meat. Cruciferous vegetables that actually like, make them healthy. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Genuinely, at, the st- at that time, they thought that veggies gave you indigestion because all they wanted to eat was like eggs, cheese, and like quail. It's, it's really a miracle any of our civilizations have made it this far. How did you just not feel disgusting all the time? You know? Yeah, well, back to the seven motifs of disgust. Disgust is culturally conditioned. Like, I think at a certain point, you just, like, if you're going to be dirty and gross and eating that kind of stuff like you culturally conditioned yourself to not feel gross about it because you had to feel like your body would feel bloated and but maybe if that's just the way you always are you never know that you're bloated just think that's your- yeah i would imagine Ooh, what a nightmare <laughs> okay anyway yeah and so that that sort of those options basically like using a hole or like using a chamber pot and then taking it to a cesspit sometimes that getting taken away to use for farm fertilizer is basically what most people who are living in towns and cities most places in the world are doing for hundreds of years Um, and as recently as like the 1500s cities are basically just a place for the most part smell like animal poop and food waste and trash and human poop that is just like the reality of living in a city is that uh and the french king at one point was riding through paris and was so disgusted that he wrote like a proclamation basically ordering the parisians to clean their city up and part of it reads the city is so filthy and gutted with mud animal excrement rubble and other offals that one and all have seen fit to leave heaped before their doors against all reason as well as against the ordinances of our predecessors that it provokes great horror and greater displeasure in all valiant persons of substance which louis was uh, this is francis whoa not even no, a louis so pre-louis but the louis once they once they built versailles they were out well, do you? Well, once they built Versailles, Versailles was so big you couldn't make it to a chamber pot. So there's stories from Marie Antoinette where she was so shocked by the French court because there was so much decorum and like who changed their clothes and who walked you here and who did that. And then she went into the Hall of Mirrors and there's dudes just peeing in the corner. What? Because they couldn't make it to a chamber pot, and she was like, "Uh, what? that is wild." Yes, and I think there's also stories. I'll have to fact check this, but I've heard this on a different trivia source. And there's also stories that at the opera, if you would go at the like, you know, fanciest time, imagine the most outlandish outfits that time <laughs> from Maria Antoinette and there wouldn't be enough toilets. There were no women's toilets. 
there were just none. They just didn't make any. So the men would have a place to go pee, but the women would just have to either go on themselves and just hope they had enough skirt, or you'd go home. So you had to, like, strategize your evening out to not have to go. You'd have to plan accordingly with your consumption. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's sort of, at least in my experience, like, that's my reality now when I'm socializing with people is, like, the activity we do is, like, we go outside and, like, have a picnic or, like, we'll, like, have drinks as we're, like, sitting in a park. And because there are no public bathrooms open at the moment and, like, no one wants to use other people's bathrooms. You're like, well, our like our socializing will be over when one of us needs to pee because <laughs> we're yeah. going to go home at that end point. of the night. Which I think the other part I heard was that that would color like a Jane Austen ball scenario. Like that's the part that Jane Austen never mm-hmm. wrote. <laughs> We're like five girls in one house and you're going to Pemberley or Netherfield or whatever. Like you got to plan for that night because it's the one ball you're getting all season. You're not going to, and then if one of you has to go home, you all have to go home because you're in the one carriage. Mm-hmm. So everyone is like not drinking anything all day and just eating cheese. Like that's what's happening. And so none of us have to go home. <laughs> just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Because you just, you wouldn't ask. Right. What's her name? Uh, who's the sister in that? Mrs. B- Miss Bingley. You wouldn't go up to Miss Bingley and be like, where's your restroom? Nope. You're going home. So you can imagine the grounds. You know people at those parties would just sneak out into the, like, the garden area and you know, take your bit and come back in and be like, no, everything's fine. Because also at those parties, what are you doing? Eating and drinking. Just like the things we like, the things we do to ourselves because we're not willing to just like have the conversation about this universal human need is shocking and also not shocking at the same time. It's, it's both, right? The reason you can't talk about it in the dinner table is that okay. Uh-huh. Okay. So we're living in this world that like smells bad and is gross, and there's just kind of poop everywhere. <laughs> and we're living in this world for a while, but eventually we realize we don't have to live like that, or at least the really rich people don't have to live like that. So in 1592, so about you know, 60 years after uh, Francis writes about the streets of Paris being covered in all sorts of gross things, Sir John Harrington invents the first modern flush toilet in England, gives it as a gift to Queen Elizabeth, who uses it once, and it's so loud and terrifying when you flush that she never uses it again. So it's apparently like she's that scared of noise. I mean, okay. I mean, right? If you if you're sitting on a what is it, looks like a chair, and all of a sudden you hear this like loud rush of water for the first time in your life. I mean, if it's flushing as you're going, that is disconcerting, even in a modern for place. sure auto flush mm-hmm. ones that can scare you, that can spook you, depending on what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't take off, let's say. And the other reason it doesn't is because no one has indoor plumbing at this point. So if you want to get that water, someone is carrying that water to your flush toilet, which means only the very, very wealthy even have the option to think about it. Well, his heart's in the right place. He sees the Exactly. Need, so. And like he makes he makes something that works. He apparently really liked his. He wasn't scared by it. He used it frequently. Um, but Queen Elizabeth, less so. One. 
that one worker that had to carry his toilet water up for him every day. But I guess it's probably better than having to carry his poop down multiple times a day. I mean, what, yeah, what an upgrade to your life. <laughs> I guess. Take what you can get. And so the next sort of big development in toilet technology is going to be in 1775 when Alexander Cummings invents the S-curve, which is that bend in the pipe that keeps all of the stinky smells from the sewer from coming back up out your toilet. So major shift, really important piece of technology if you're going to hook a toilet in your home up to a sewer. The last thing you want is for your home to smell like the sewer. And so it's sort of like one of those like necessary inventions that it like does other things, but is super important if you're going to put a toilet inside your house. Um, and that's one of the interesting things I didn't quite realize when researching this, but toilets are a thing sometimes, but, and there are things separate from there being a room in your house called the bathroom where there is a toilet in it. Like toilets get invented and they still sort of live either like on a, on a thing attached to the outside of your house or in a separate outhouse. Like they don't fully move into your house until like significantly later in that process. Uh, in part, because you have to like build the room, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't think of that. But it makes sense. It makes sense. If they're always like from like mammals, take that business over there. Like it's a physical move to remove it from the area of living. So it makes sense that it would take a while to like migrate. Yeah. And I think too, right? Like you're not going to like tear down your house just to build a bathroom on the second floor. That's a wild thing to think about when people are like, what would happen if like a somebody came from back then to now? They would be mortified that you would have a privy in your house. Mm-hmm. They would think you're disgusting. Yes, and the fact that it's like a room you would like, your... ask to use in yeah. someone else's home. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I heard this story today about my mother's my mom's grandmother, who lived in like a small town in Illinois in the what must have been like the late 1800s. Um, but that the she, so she passed away from a heart attack. But the reason people knew about that was because her mailman came into her house to use the bathroom while he was like going around delivering mail. And just like the, the thought, right, of someone sort of like casually coming into your house to use your restroom uh, is not something that like 1500s or 1700s, even early 1800s people would possibly think about. But by the end of the century, it becomes a thing that is sociable, right? Like you, you offer you like you offer people the use of your restroom. Oh. And part I wonder if it's a status symbol thing. Like I hadn't thought about that, but like having a restroom to offer to people is a bit of like a it's a way of flouting the status in this sort of similar way to like talking about your shampoo or your hair care. Also, the range of the range of names we give it to not say, at least in America, because in the UK they go like, "Where the where's the toilet?" Which is always it always like throws me. I was like, "You gotta just go for it." Just say like, "Where's the toilet?" And the toilet is a euphemism for bathroom. Where the toilet's at? Where you know we gotta go over there. You know, it's a casual reference. Whereas like here, if you were ever like, "Hey, where's your toilet?" It feels like very forward you don't say that <laughs> you say everything but you go in there for everything but the toilet you go in there for a powder room where's your lavatory where's your restroom bathroom i just need to you know yeah i need to freshen up 
I need to freshen up. Yeah. So it is really in the 1800 that we start to see bathrooms, as we would understand them in the modern sense, start to develop. Um, the flushable toilet isn't really gonna sort of break into the mainstream until the late 1800s or after 1850 again because you need indoor plumbing and most people don't have indoor plumbing and won't have it until sort of early 20th century in a lot of places um although interestingly one of the first places in the u.s that does have indoor plumbing and with it like flushable toilets is eastern state penitentiary in philadelphia which is this like big prison complex in the city uh, which installed running water and flushable toilets in the 1830s. Um, so at a moment where like there wasn't necessarily running water in most rich people's houses, if you were in prison in Philadelphia, you had running water. Little like factoid, uh, I know everyone loves to talk about Thomas Crapper as the inventor of the modern flush toilet. They really love that, yeah. yeah. Uh, turns out, did not invent it. Uh, he does hold, he did hold some patents for like improvements to the flush toilet and he was responsible for installing it in a number of english royal palaces which is i think part of how the name gets associated with the thing uh but he did not sort of invent it and so it is really sort of once once indoor plumbing and the modern flush toilet come together then it's in that beginning in the late 1800s and then into the 1900s that it really starts to enter the mainstream as more and more people get access to indoor plumbing in their homes and so it's sort of by the, I'd say by the mid 20th century is when you can sort of get the expectation that at least in sort of industrialized countries, there will be access to toilets and indoor plumbing in most people's homes. It's really interesting. Now we've basically gotten to the point where toilets are sort of the, de- in a lot of ways, the defining feature of our architecture. When you go to like build a building one of the first things you need to figure out is where is the wet wall. So the wall with all of the like plumbing stuff in it, which is often why like in large buildings, the bathrooms will be in the same place on every floor because it's a lot cheaper to just build one wall with all of that plumbing in it and put bathrooms on top of each other than have to build multiple walls. And it really just speaks to like the scale of poop as a problem for human society. Uh, I found this statistic that today humans produce 400 million metric tons of poop every year, which is staggering. It's like a staggering amount of poop. Everything about that stat made me not Frankie is revolting on the floor about it. She's all twisted <laughs> down there. She's like, why are we talking about it? Um, That's disgusting. Uh, Is that like as big as Rhode Island? Like, what is that? I, I don't even want to think about like what that, that size okay. equivalent is because okay. that's not an image that that's I really fair. wanted in my head. That's fair. That's fair. I don't think you should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I do have one. I have a fun, if if such a thing exists, I have a fun poop fact, which is that uh, most animals, regardless of size, take about the same amount of time to poop. So a mouse and an elephant, even though they produce waste on like vastly different scales, take about the same amount of time to void their bowels. Wow. Somebody checked that you know, with a stopwatch. Yep. And somebody watched that and checked it and made sure it made sense. And then they collected that waste and then they measured it to learn what, how that was possible. That, imagine that being like your job. Your purpose in life. What does that do for us to know that? 
so the the interesting thing is that the research ends up being about this layer of mucus that your intestines produce oh my god which okay. is what lets it okay. exit your body more quickly all right okay all right that's great. Which they think uh, might be useful for like research into lubrication more broadly. But that's how science works. Someone looked at to figure that thing out. Don't tell anybody that wants to like cut funding to science because that's the study they're going to pull. That's like, what's the purpose of this funding? And you go like, we don't know. It might yield something you don't even know. Like it's, you know, it's helpful for astronauts in space to know all of these things. It actually right? is. It is. Can we can we yeah. talk about pooping in space? Because I have a couple. So, oh my God, you have stuff. Left. So that's sort of what I have for like the the history of poop. But I have some like I call them big debates. There's some like some questions or interesting things about human waste. And one of them is how do you poop in space? Because it's a huge problem for space. I mean, it is the highlight. Have you seen The Martian? Uh, no, I've read the book, but I haven't seen the movie. Well, there's like a really, spoiler alert, there's a really great moment where he's trying to figure out food, and he's the botanist, which is super helpful, so he's trying to figure out how to grow potatoes, and he goes into the laboratory of like how they deal with their waste, and he opens all, I guess they like somehow compact it or something into like little packages so that it's not just like in a latrine somewhere. And he has to like open them up and like figure out who's is gonna be best for his purposes. And so he's kind of judging his friends based on how bad their stuff's going. It's a great funny moment. Um, but you know, it's a resourceful use of those uh, materials at the time. What do you got? Yeah. So the so the big challenge with uh, waste removal in space is on Earth we rely on gravity to do a lot of that work for us. Oh no. And they're right. There's no, there's no gravity in space. It's like a, right. So you need to figure out how to guide that waste away from your body and then also do something with it, which on space stations, they figured out like they can generate a vacuum and that does that pretty well. Sort of just like a, like a more aggressive wow. airplane toilet in a way. But when you're in a space suit, you don't really have the room for that kind of equipment and so one thing NASA has been trying to do is they would like to be able to design a spacesuit that astronauts can live in for multiple days in case there's like some sort of issue on a space station or on a long-term flight and they need to like be in a spacesuit for a couple of days while they're fixing stuff. At the moment, the only real option is like we're in a diaper and that gets real uncomfortable. For days? Right? Like, because you can't change the diaper, I'm assuming. No, you can't. So it's not really feasible because you can't like that. They need to pull out whatever they put in those rely tampons and make that the diaper. <laughs> they can reuse that 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of wild to think like the thing I had never thought about, but like for the Apollo missions, when they went to the moon and were spending like several days in this small capsule with like three, three dudes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You ever think about like how, like there's not a, no, I didn't. There's not a bathroom on those Apollo capsules. Yeah. There's no room for one. Wow. So they have wow. plastic bags with adhesive. Gatorade. Great Gatorade bottles. It's basically that. It's like, it's bags with like adhesive strips on the top that you would like adhere to your butt and then <gasps> relieve yourself into and then seal. Oh my God. They are American heroes. <laughs> Anybody that has to do that next to a friend. Right. You know what I mean? And then like, like 
looking at someone in the eyes <laughs> across a capsule. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and just like ha- now that's the only thing I can think about. No! Someone had to invent that. Someone had to test it. I mean, that's just that's not just their knowledge. Like, there's guys that are committed to making sure that bag works. Mm-hmm. NASA approved. And so obviously NASA is trying to move away from that and move in a direction that doesn't involve diapers or bags. Well, the amount of like operator error on that too just seems yes, it's just not reliable. And if there's something that NASA's good at, it's like the checklist and the procedure and the policy is like check, 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 check. Yeah, and so a lot of variables in that scenario. Too too many, one might say. But this is actually so the people who are. I'm really glad they got brains on the case though they're really trying they do and it's actually it's the mit researchers who were doing the research on elephant poop who one of them actually won the nasa design competition to design a spacesuit waste system that could deal with urine feces and menstrual fluids for up to six days for an astronaut in the suit um so that's what some of that research was useful for okay good now we made it make sense yeah all, it all comes it all comes around that study by itself super unhelpful <laughs> i know that in my i didn't want that file in my head but it was there now mm-hmm. boy okay, okay great did your research sorry are you no no, no I, that, that is the end of my my space toilet section so if you have thoughts now's the moment for them <laughs> Uh, not about space toilets in any way. Well, kind of. It melts. Me- Some people call the Japanese fancy toilets space toilets of the future. But have you? Did you do any research on like the rise in squatty potties or bidet use or the fact that Americans are weird with toilet? Oh paper? my God, Katie, this is. And please don't flush Cottonelle wet wipes down the toilet. They're not biodegradable. You're ruining our system. Yes, that is such a perfect transition into what I wanted to talk next, which is the, the toilet paper, the great toilet paper bidet divide. Yeah. About. Well, apparently it's an American thing. It, yeah. It? Like we're the weird We ones. are the weird ones. Everyone else in the world the rest is rest of like, the world is like, why are you wiping your own butt? Yes. And the, the image that I found really helpful in explaining that is like, if you had melted chocolate on your hands, you wouldn't use like toilet paper to get that off. Oh my god. Ew. <laughs> Why would you make that kind of thing? Why would you make that the association? Because that's the like the example it's in fine. all okay. of the articles. I think like, that's too vivid. That is too graphic. I hate it so much. Toilet paper is this weird American thing where yeah. basically everyone else in the world uses water in some way, shape, or form. To clean themselves and we have decided to use paper instead there's no like neither is better necessarily like scientifically medically neither is better like water might be a little bit better in the sense that like there doesn't like irritate it there's no possible like way to like create abrasions or like little open cuts if you're using like that really nasty one ply but at the same time like moisture is not a good thing to have on your skin you like would like your skin to be dry so that it doesn't get irritated um so if you use water you have to be really careful to dry it and conversely with the toilet paper it's really good at drying it but there's that risk of causing they're called like micro abrasions which open up the potential for like infections or something if you're not careful about like being thorough um so like they both have pluses or minuses uh and people have been like using sort of whatever they had to hand forever to clean themselves after going to the bathroom so like that's sort of like the leaf's 
like just like whatever you had around. Um, and so for the longest time, people were like, why would I pay money to buy this product when I have like the Sears and Roebuck catalog, which works perfectly fine. And I get that sent to me for free. Yes. Famously. It's like, what was that paper made of? It just, right. It probably wasn't super comfortable. can't feel great. No, but it was free. And people were like, this is free. And I've never used anything else. Like, why would I bother paying for this thing? And so what toilet paper basically is, is it is a marketing. It is entirely an invention of marketing. Like they, they created a need. And then they filled the need. And well, like once you get into like more of an institutional setting where like you're spending a lot of your time in an office or in a school or something like that, where like you're using a restroom that is not at your home, it does make sense to have that product. Um, at the beginning, Americans were like, well, what is this? Why do we need it? And also we're like, we don't want to talk about it because it's gross. Like we don't want to talk about any of that stuff. So like marketing, it was really hard. Um but the first toilet paper is in, introduced in 1857 by uh, Joseph Gaiety, and it comes in like a little tissue-style box. They're aloe-infused, hemp-based, so they're really soft. It actually sounds like a really pleasant experience. That could sell today. Yeah, um, but obviously it was like hard to convince people to buy it. And when the Scott brothers, Scott Toilet Paper, get into the business in the 1890s, similarly like have a lot of trouble convincing consumers to buy it they sell to like schools and hotels and other institutions that have public restrooms but are having a really hard time getting like average joe down at the corner store to like buy a roll of tp and so the really um the sort of marketing breakthrough happens in 1928 with the Charmin brand which i think we're all familiar with the like teddy bear Charmin advertisements uh and so they actually in sort of peak 1920s form, it started advertising with like a beautiful woman on their packaging, sort of evoking images of like soft femininity and using that to sell the product. So sort of like what you were talking about with advertising last episode, you're like, you're selling an idea, not necessarily a thing. In this case, they're selling the idea of like womanly softness. Well, there's, yeah. I mean, that's the best part about that article I read in the Atlantic where they were like, at this time with advertising, it's like the Don Draper-esque thing where he's like trying to evoke how you feel when you use the thing, not necessarily what the thing does or how good it is. But there's also a twist of it where it's like the more rudimentary things you have in your life, like soap, toilet paper, the basics. I don't need a nostalgia fest about soap. I need to know if soap works. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But there's still this tendency to like create a whole narrative around like, how you feel when you smell good. And it's like, I don't care. Does it work? Exactly. You know, kind of cut to the chase thing of the thing I'm already going to buy because it's a necessity. You know, I don't need a whole German strang about it. But when you're starting a new product and a new idea, you have to kind of create the idea that you want people to eventually have. So it does make sense at this time. Like you have to make some positive associations because right now there are none. So what are you going to say about it? Yeah. And in this case, they decided to go with like women and now they've transitioned to like bears, but it's still very much about this idea that like it's about softness and comfort. Yeah. And so that's why Americans use toilet paper. We've been successfully marketed to. And basically the rest of the world is like, y'all are weird. We're going to use water often sort of in the form of a bidet. Uh, but Japan, as you were mentioning, has pioneered some of these like all in one super toilets where it's like it's a toilet, 
and it's a bidet and there's like an air dry system involved. So it does like everything you need it to in one. There are some public toilets in Japan, I know, but other countries that it's much lower to the ground. It's not a seat, it is a uh, basin on the ground. So you have to genuinely like squat over mm-hmm. it. And Westerners or like Americans in particular, but many, you know, European associated countries are not familiar with that concept or that I <laughs> don't know how to use it. Um, but it's not like, you know, it's still like a porcelain basin and there's a flush mechanism there and all that. It's just a different mm-hmm. angle, for lack of a better word. But there's a lot of sort of differences culturally with that as well. And that's sort of one of the things the squatty potty, which you also mentioned, aims to address is there's questions about whether the squatting sort of being the like more natural way of relieving yourself, whether if by sitting you're constraining your internal organs in such a way that like you're doing like damage, or at least it's not like the most natural, most pleasant experience. You're doing more work. Yeah. Whether that product solves the problem. I've never had like personal success with a squatty potty. So are we genuinely the only country that uses toilet paper? Or there's it's smattering. Like um, the UK uses toilet paper. I think Canada and Mexico both do. Um, and it's sort of, it's gained particularly like in, places where like you would expect American tourists to be or like in public spaces in a lot of places it's gained sort of more widespread acceptance. Um, but it's definitely still like it is, it is not the universal experience by any stretch. What I find fascinating is a common thread in all of our conversations thus far about hygiene is just like how eco fraught the future is with a lot of these things. Like the consumption of water, the consumption of uh, paper or, or tree products, and then with stuff we were talking about the other day, I mean, plastic bottles and, and waxes and, you know, just trash in general. Yeah, and the crazy thing is, it uses far more water to make toilet paper than it would if we all just used a bidet. Like, the production of the paper itself uses more water than just using water in the first place. Fascinating. That's good to know. But it is genuinely like it's a problem because the th- the alternative, if you're if you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, in theory, you want the thing that people will always have to buy. You want the consumable good. You don't want to get them to buy something that they can use forever. So the market is such that you need to reinvest in things. So I, I get the double-edged sword of it. Like, you can't just consume and consume and consume because there will not be enough at some point. But at the same time, you can't make it so good that you only have one thing for the rest of your life. Like, oh, here's your, you know, the day. Almost like markets are the problem, but we don't have to get into that right now. Listen, socialist, you can't just, yeah, I know. But, you know. And then, and the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is, like, just an interesting thing, um, not necessarily super tied to the toilets themselves but is this idea of like public toilets as queer space um particularly in like the late in the late 19th and early 20th century in europe um as like as a participant of female restrooms what do you need to know michael there's nothing going on in there that's like tempting i don't know i don't get it no i mean so that's the we can we can talk about like bathrooms as a site of moral panic which I think I think would like transitions well out of this. Um, so in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
uh, particularly in Europe, like London and Paris, uh, as homosexuality in public spaces becomes increasingly policed, it's harder for usually men to find places uh, to engage in what is becoming illicit sexual activity. And so one of the areas that evolves as sort of a central place to go pursue male partners is public restrooms because it's an it's one of the few areas where like men are in close proximity with each other and there's sort of this right you're doing a a fairly intimate thing anyway and so becomes a space where um men seeking sex with other men are able to sort of go and find a a relatively private a code but still public place to do that in like exactly a language And and a code develops yeah and so there's like even books that are published um like even through the 20s where they're purporting to be sort of a tour of public restrooms in London, just sort of like as a guidebook. But if you read them knowing that they're also coded um, for the gay community, you can tell that the books are actually pointing you like which bathrooms to avoid because they're heavily policed versus which ones tend to be safer or where you're more likely to have privacy. And so there's really interesting, basically like underground community evolves around these public restrooms and so then the public restrooms become this space of like moral panic where the police are really concerned about regulating sexual activity that's happening around them it's one of the reasons that public restrooms sort of fall away as a thing because people are so concerned that they like promote these sort of quote-unquote illicit behaviors and so there's a tendency to want to like close them down as locations for that because they develop these associations. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, have you ever thought, like, why? It feels really problematic to close public restrooms. Yes, it 100% is. And it tells you, like, wh- how concerned people are about this particular issue, that they're willing to close them rather than, like, let this conceivably continue to happen but make a very valuable public service accessible to people. No, I mean, that that tracks the people that are the most freaked out by that kind of conduct going on in a public restroom will not tolerate public restrooms to begin with in a lot of ways. So, you know, they're not using them anyway. So um, that's a general statement and probably not very fair, but usually the morally panicked are the ones not yeah at the, uh, what would I call it? Front lines of the issue for lack of a better word, but yeah. Okay. Nonsense. Okay. But this this is sort of the beginning then of like this of bathrooms as a location for moral panic, which in a lot of ways I thought was a very recent development, right? This this sort of right wing panic about transgender people using bathrooms. Mm-hmm. As if they just started, you know, as if it just started happening. Right. They like have not until right now. But it is in fact a, a until we put a law about it. Yeah, it is it is a it is a it is a site of conflict basically through the like 1880s all the way to now. And there's like time and time again, it becomes a place where people sort of play out their fears about a particular group. Uh, So obviously like in the mid century, you see a lot of fears around segregation and quote unquote race mixing being focused on bathrooms and other public amenities like that. And then obviously this sort of discussion now about transgender people. And I have to say as like, as a, as a person who has used, uh like gender neutral restroom like a like a multi-stall gender neutral restroom the thing the only thing i'm concerned about is the male versus female restroom etiquette about talking that is the only thing i've ever been worried about is figuring out what that new rule is because dudes don't talk in the bathroom 
And my understanding is that that is not true in women's rooms. Okay. 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 Uh, Talking can occur. I would say the unspoken rule in my perception is like once you're in the stall, that's you time and you're not participating in the conversation Mm -hmm. anymore unless there is a need for passing of uh, uh, toilet paper or other products that one may need upon discovery of being in the stall, which has happened. Mm -hmm. So there is a camaraderie in that regard of like you might need some assistance. I guess there is chatter, but it's not like you are required to speak back, you know, once, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Everyone's a little bit different, but it's not like you will talk when you're in there, you know. For sure. But I think like at least my understanding experience of like male restrooms is that there's oh, very much like, a, a code of silence. Like oh. you don't Oh, I understand. You don't talk when you go in. Um Oh, okay. Cause I think I, I, I imagine it's probably some like latent homophobia about like having conversations with other men while your penis is exposed. Well, since there was a code, I mean, it makes sense that since there was a code, any, you know, for the really scared homophobes in there, you don't want to, you don't want to do anything that would instigate behavior that you don't want or vice versa, I guess. I don't know. Dudes are weird. But um, (laughs) I will also say that for a woman's only restroom, there isn't a, openness in the same way that male restrooms have either like you will not see someone else on the toilet in a women's room unless there's a problem with the door or a lock or something like you are always in a stall or at the sink so there is no urinal equivalent so there's that factor too where it's just like you have to code of silence you have to make your own stall when you're in there by not speaking yeah at the urinal i'm guessing that's where the most awkwardness feels I do not envy you all. So, I yeah. I will say, I mean, selfishly, it, it is nice to have a space sometimes that is uh, private in that way. But I don't think it should be exclusionary either. So I like having like an option, you know, where it's like, mm-hmm. this is a gender neutral bathroom. So like anybody can go in versus like, this is a... You can go in based on whatever gender you identify with. So that female space, I don't know the, what's the way to say it. Like, I wouldn't, female spaces are so rare. Male spaces are so rare. One gender is so rare. So I don't know if we should keep them necessarily. But I do know there's something lost somehow. I don't know if I'm saying this right. If It does feel like something's a little bit lost when someone who presents as male comes into a female space does that make sense i think so i think you're it seems like you're saying like it shouldn't come at the cost of excluding people and making other people feel uncomfortable but rather there's just something about like a place where of where that kind of solidarity is allowed to exist that is valuable there is such a culture i when we did i mean when we did that play where a lot of it took place in the women's restroom you remember hearing about this conversation where it's just like it's not that you want to exclude people or you want them to feel excluded but there is like I don't even want to call it sisterhood or something, but there's like, there's a, there is a safety aspect to a restroom. I'm not saying you go in there and you feel invincible. You still like in any public space where you are female, you are aware in a way that I don't think men are or have to be. But there is something to be said of like, in those public scenarios, we all have stories where, hey, will you just come to me with a bat? You talk to a friend of yours and you're like, will you just come to the bathroom with me for a minute? And you go in groups and there's this like... There's this cultural question from men, I think, of just like, why do they always go in groups? And it's genuinely because many reasons. But 
that is a safe space that is private, that you can't get in, that is a breach of conduct if you do enter. It's a, a clear boundary and it's held by society. So that doesn't exist in a lot of places for women. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And for the men that go like, well, those don't exist for men either. It's like the whole space is for men. Like every space is like that. Not anymore, but like for the most part, for most of time, most spaces were like that for men to have. And a woman entering it would be seen as like a very odd, why are you in here? This is a breach of conduct. What's going on? So do both genders need it? I don't know. Where are we headed? I don't know. But it is some. It's it is interesting cultural kind of conversation of like the safety that people feel in there for the most part. It's not always safe. It's not an impenetrable fortress either. You know what I mean? And like trade secrets aren't happening. But, you know, it's an interesting conversation that is more complex than just like what we hear about on the news, I think. Mm -hmm. For sure. As most things tend to be. But anytime that I have had to share, it has been precious few times, but anytime that I have had to share a restroom with uh, someone who identifies as male, it is never a problem. It was like the initial jarring of like, oh, okay. And then you just kind of, like every bathroom in your home, you deal with your stuff. I mean, I think that's where we're all headed. It's just like, yeah. if we're going to share space like that, it just has to be more like a home restroom and less like the gym showers, for lack of a better allegory. Yeah, I would, I, any anything we can do as a society to move away from like high school movie gym shower vibes is a very welcome thing in my opinion i heard a weird theory that they're like that because it's a way of like militarizing the youth this is such a weird concept oh interesting so like you have to get used to that because when you go into the military you're not going to have privacy in that way so you have to like get used to it Mm -hmm. but at what cost is all i'm saying because everyone is traumatized by those group changing rooms and showers and stuff yes yeah, I don't, that's a, that's a whole chunk of my childhood I don't really want to go back to. Who does? What a nightmare. Right? Okay, do we want to take a quick break and then we can talk about some teeth? Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do it. So I have found the seven motifs of disgust <laughs> paper and i'm trying i'm trying to find the motifs i didn't want to make you feel more embarrassed talking about it but i do picture you in a little argyle sweater <laughs> listening to your mom and dad talk to you about disgust levels at a very young age i know it wasn't you said you were a teenager but that's where my brain went i'm glad that that's the image i think my my recollection of the dinner table conversations is more something along the lines of it would be invoked as that we were discussing it and it r- rarely, if ever, halted the conversation. Fair. Where you're like, noted, thank you, but it's fascinating. Okay, are we ready to round it out with dental hygiene? Do you want to know what the motifs are? Oh, yeah. Lay them on me. So they are around food. Animals, so it's not technically bestiality. It's just around animals. But that's what your Bodily... brother said, I'm really hoping. Yeah, a... nice. that's exactly what he said. Bodily products, sex, envelope violations, death, hygiene, and magic. And I'm not, qu- not quite sure what... Ah, uh, okay. 
magic is like things that are not in themselves gross, but that your brain thinks are gross. So like, for example, like sleeping in a hotel room, if you know that someone had died in that room. Oh. Eating a piece of chocolate that looks like poop, but you know is not poop. Oh, illusion. Illusions of disgust. Yeah. Something, well, that's like your, that's your mammalian brain trying to protect you, right? Where it's just like, those are all Mm -hmm. my triggers. You need to not touch that thing. Exactly. Sort of like if you see, okay, so like, do you think some of that is like, when you're repelled by a creature, just by the way it looks, like visual stimuli. And by that, I mean not because you think it's gross, but because, like, you see a spider scurry at you. Mm-hmm. Your brain isn't scared of the spider because it's going to hurt you. Well, you kind of are. You're scared of the spider bite and what that could possibly do and if it's poisonous. Just like if you see a spider with a bright yellow back, you're like, that could probably do some damage. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to avoid it. Or like a snake. There's something about a human watching a snake. Something in our brain triggers where it's like, that's not right. That's going to hurt me. I don't like it. Because they bite you and they're poisonous and you don't know which ones are poisonous. So they're all kind of creepy and awful. Yeah. And that made its way into our religious narrative. And that's why the devil is a snake. Because as mammals, we knew not to mess with those guys. We're very subtle like that. Would those count as illusiony, illusiony, disgusty things? Or is that just I think so. Although so that that might that might fall under the animal category, like seeing a like a oh animals in general, right, 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 like seeing like a cockroach or a spider or something like that come too yeah. close. But yeah, envelope violations is the one that always really gets me, because um, it's the it's the kind of thing that like really like does actually really get it. is like if someone gets like a fish hook stuck in their finger, um, or like like someone's like been in an accident and a part of their body that should be on the inside is on the outside that's envelope yeah envelope violations those are bodily harm or bodily awareness yeah it's like it's like disrupting the like structural integrity of your body in some way wow so like and like for me that ties back to like an accident i got into when i was little where like part of i like broke a finger and part of my finger was like bone was sticking out so that feeling i'm having right now as you say that Mm -hmm. yep that's that's my feeling that is some envelope violation disgust well it's why if you get really really hurt and like if your face is screwed up they won't let you look at your own face in the mirror Mm -hmm. until you're more healed right Mm -hmm. like freak your brain out yeah exactly and yeah wow fascinating okay cool cool cool. now are you ready to talk about dentistry (laughs) let's do it okay So, once again, I guess this is when we all started writing stuff down. 3000 BCE. Assyrian medical texts mention teeth cleaning procedures. So, there's also some toothpicks that they found from this time in ancient site, uh, ancient um, uh, archaeology sites. Um, Like Mm -hmm. in modern day Iraq, they found toothpicks. And there are some, uh, thank goodness for the Egyptians, because, man, their burial procedure, excuse me, my dog is just wilding out this evening she doesn't want me to do a podcast tonight will you sit please oh sorry frankie you just chewed a bone we're gonna talk about teeth we're gonna talk about teethers so the egyptians with all their tombs do a really good job preserving not just their own bodies but all of the stuff that would accompany a body and basically the idea is like whatever you need in the afterlife you need to take with you Mm -hmm. that's why the tombs exist to the level that they do at least for the pharaohs and all the super rich dudes and women um 
So you would need your toothbrush in the afterlife. So they put all that stuff in the in the pyramids and things like that. So um, there's there are toothbrushing tools back then uh, for the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Um, for basically, it was like end of a twig. You take the pieces of a brush. That brush could be uh, the twig itself frayed. So you would get like a fibrous reed Mm -hmm. and sort of whittle it down a little bit and then chew on it and it would fray and create its own kind of brush. And that would be used for cleaning. And then you'd have toothpicks alongside it in case you got some of those fibers in between. The in-between teeth is Mm -hmm. always a thing. But for the most part, um, chewing sticks is definitely like the OG preferred method of teeth cleaning for humans back then. And due to the nature of the wonderful flora across the world, there's quite a few different kinds of sticks that made their way in several different cultures. So the Chinese have chewing sticks. Africa has a ton of kinds. Um, Mesopotamia and Egypt have their own kinds and even Europe. Um, basically whatever's fibrous. And then, uh, has shown it to be, like, aromatic in some way. So there is, like, a freshness thing that is sought out at this time as well. Mm -hmm. So there's some, like, I think um, licorice sticks become popular and some other kind of, like, mildly aromatic, uh, essentially oil-smelling kind of twigs. (laughs) That's interesting because I, like, wouldn't think of licorice as, like, a clean mouth feeling but i guess i'm probably thinking licorice candy yeah but if you're not around any other kind of fresh is mint to us nowadays right in all forms of mint or like i guess citrus and lemon smells smell clean Mm -hmm. but at this time and in these different regions like clean to them is different smells as well in 1193 uh the uh when i should say in the roman empire there is a there is a god of medicine and healing and that god is believed to also advocate cleansing of the mouth and teeth as part of healing and medicine. So it's seen as like an important factor. Mm-hmm. Um, Aristotle discussed teeth in some of his writings in 384 BC. Incorrectly enough, uh, <laughs> he has his moments, old Aristotle, but he decided arbitrarily to just say that men have more teeth than women. And like, I guess he just never checked or like counted. I mean, or could count. That feels incredibly on brand for Aristotle. I mean, lazy pants is all I have to say. So quote him all you want. He couldn't count teeth. Okay, there's only like twenty some. So he's a lazy. <laughs> he's a lazy sob. <laughs> and he wrote it down. So like, not only was he sure and didn't check, he then wrote it down, and it is it's still in existence today. So that that's what really irks me. You know what I mean? How long did that go? Male confidence right there. <laughs> Unearned confidence. Um, okay. Uh, Hippocrates is um, is on record as one of the first people to recommend a powder to help clean the teeth in 355 BC. And similarly, I think I found um, different kinds of powders, but ash was one of them or soot. Mm. Basically, anything that was like a super fine, fine, fine ground powder would work. So what did you always have on hand? You would always have a fire burning. So you would always have ash. And then if you'd rinse it out with, um, you know, whatever you had on hand, wine or water, whatever was working. um, It wasn't like you lingered with that breath, which I find interesting with all the like charcoal powders of today. How ironic that is that that's what. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of started sort of come full circle again. It. Yeah, yeah. An Arabian surgeon in 936 CE 
was the first to write about tartar formation on teeth and to see a pattern of like growth. Um, and he was so fascinated by it with Albucasis. Albucasis is the Arabian surgeon. He was so into tartar and like getting in and off teeth that he like made tools for it. So he's one of the earliest dentistry proficients and decides to like, that shouldn't be on there. And I think the better your teeth look, the healthier you are. So I'm going to invent 14 scrapers designed specifically to get that ish off your teeth. That is a lot of scrapers. So for as long as we've kind of been studying teeth, we wanted to get the crap off of it and like scrape it off. So we have him to thank for that awful sound in our ears whenever we go to the dentist. That's like, it's tied also to like looking good, like healthy teeth look nice and that that idea is paired because a lot of like a lot of like what feels like early medicine is what we would think of as like not looking particularly healthy or good was like Mm -hmm. good medicine at that point so it's Mm -hmm. interesting that like the teeth idea seems to remain pretty constant yeah and there is this kind of development of like you clearly would feel your teeth kind of get gross after a while and the the twigs and the the chewing sticks would help with that um with the more severe decay that would occur, decay occurs by many, uh, by a couple different reasons. It's not just one thing, and you should brush your teeth and floss and do all the things your dentist says. I am not a doctor. But um, the the understanding of why your tooth decayed was uh, varied throughout time. And one of the theories that I did find fascinating is, like, you c- they knew that decay was bad, so they wanted to prevent it, but they didn't quite know exactly what caused it and one of the theories they had which i found interesting is they thought there were unseen worms in your teeth that would burrow out and that's what would cause cavities okay because like decay in one spot over time didn't make sense to them kind of a disconnect of like i know i need to brush and like feel clean but i don't know if this is doing it right you know so there's some different solutions for like how to deal with the worms in your teeth back then that didn't have to do with actual dentist health um But, you know, at some point they're putting all kinds of animal poop in places they shouldn't be putting it, and we don't need to get into that. But um, in the 1400s, it's believed that the Chinese are actually the first to fabricate, like, um, an artificial source of a toothbrush. And what they did is they took a, um, a piece of stick, but then they found that the pigs that they had... Um, that were in the colder climates had really, really stiff bristles or stiff hair. Mm-hmm. And you could get the hair off the back of the pig's neck <laughs> and make a really fine brush out of that, which sounds disgusting, I'm sure. But if that's a step up, the twigs you have, or you're in a place where you don't have a lot of, if it's cold climate because of these pigs and what they have, then maybe you don't have as much plant life to source as, as you would like to have all of these sticks on hand. And with the sticks, like, they wear down over time. Like, you have to keep them in constant supply because it's not like you can use one forever. So they would attach it to, like, a bone or a bamboo handle and, like, use it for a, it's a longer-term solution. Uh, it was brought to China by Europe, and they developed by using what they had on hand. They didn't have these weird, you know, frigid pigs, so they had horses. So they decided to use horse hair instead of the, the pig hair. Um, and other designs in Europe even used feathers. At the time. Interesting. Like really like little tiny feathers. Yeah, like really tiny little bristly guys. Or like the, yeah, you'd cut them down even so that they would make more of a brush. Mm-hmm. 1728, Pierre Fauchard 
is called the father of modern dentistry, and that's because he publishes something called The Surgical Dentist, who advises... <laughs> maybe he's not the great proponent of dentistry, that like, because he actually um, advises against brushing in favor of cleaning the teeth with a toothpick or a sponge and mixture of water or brandy. So I don't know what brushes he was dis- deriding. And there's also not a consensus on what you brush with at this time. There's not like... Mm-hmm you know, marketed cleaning powders yet. But um, in some places I read chalk was used. You'd break the chalk up a lot and then use that as a brush. 1819, The Practical Guide to the Management of Teeth by Levi, Levi Spear Parmley. Uh, he is the first to advocate for brushing and cleaning the teeth with waxed silk. So it's the first indication of floss being a good asset in um, dental practice. Mm-hmm. It's also important to note that at this time, like, Dentistry is a fraught escapade as well, and I didn't do as much research into it as I should have, but there's a whole phase where barber surgeons, have you heard? I have. The solution the solution for teeth, like, even though people are brushing at this time and doing some care to their mouths, uh, you would still have problems, and you would still have issues, and basically what I observe is that the solution for teeth problems is to just pull them out because mm-hmm. that that ends the problem whatever is causing you the pain or hurting like just yank it out you have enough you know you can still chew you'll be fine so it wasn't really seen as like the need for a medical practice so i guess the barber wasn't busy and had all the tools so he would just yank your teeth out and you didn't have to go to it anyway, just a nightmare. But also doctors didn't know what they were doing anyway. So I don't know if you'd want to go to one of them either. There's like a really great dollop episode, which if people are interested in like the his- like why like your dentist is a different person than your doctor and why they're like totally different. Like you yeah. need dental insurance and you need medical insurance. And they're like totally separate things. Yeah. Um, and apparently it's a lot of it is down to like turf wars between dentists and doctors who just like didn't want to share. Yeah. And doctors don't want to know about, doctors don't want to know about teeth, I don't think. They're like, there's a whole field for that. And they take it and they run with it and they've got all the stats. Um, Yeah, turf war for sure. And then, uh, well, I heard, the craziest story I heard is like in that era of medicine shows. Do you know about medicine shows? No. Where like the snake oil salesman would come in and be like, I have a hair oil that'll grow your this and I have that. And here's Blimey, the barber surgeon who can pull teeth in under a minute. And anybody that needed dentistry would go up and he would try to pull them in like record number. He would try and do them as fast as he could. So it was like a gimmick along with dentist relief. It's a wild time. Oh my god! Let's all not go back there. That's all I'm saying. No, thank you. So yeah, look into medicine shows and what a wild ride that is. So like these barbers, they would go around and like sell their wares and like promote their goods and services. And one of their services is like, I can whip all your teeth out in under a minute. Because also, there's no, well, to their credit, there's no chloroform. So you want a skilled, fast practitioner, right? That can just get it done. So it is a For benefit. For sure. But at what cost? <laughs> um, <laughs> you're yanking out teeth. And if he's not super dedicated to what he's doing, he might yank the wrong one. Um, 1845, American Journal of Dental Science uh, exists, but also prescribes cleaning the teeth with floss, now a more commonplace practice, two or three times per day. This is the first known rent reference to preventative dental hygiene in an American journal. Okay. Um, 1865, Louis Pasteur has shown up and shown about, like, uh, pasteurization and microbial infections. 
So that um, sort of stokes the fire of many an inventor. And with all of the sort of industrial age going full force, an English doctor named Joseph Lister uh, uh, develops a use of carbolic acid on surgical dressings that reduces the rate of infections in post-surgery. So much to be commended. Thank you, Mr. Lister. Well Well worth your time. Uh, Mr. Lister's work inspires a St. Louis doctor named Joseph Lawrence, who sees that one of the main ingredients is alcohol-based. So he develops an alcohol-based formula for a surgical antiseptic that also uses eucalyptol, menthol, and methyl salicylate. I can can read. (laughs) Salicylate and thymol. Uh, And he names it... Listerine in honor of Lister. It was based for to be um, a surgical antiseptic, though, which I was always told that it was a floor cleaner, which maybe that's we all what I've been told as well. This was just an initial de- like I should find out about mouthwash too. Um, so I should look. At- I think there's an Adams ruin everything about halitosis mm-hmm. that will answer all of your Listerine questions. Um, but I did find it interesting that. It came out of Louis Pasteur. Like, that is the great benefit of germ theory and scientific discovery at this time. Also, like, yay, we figured out that you should clean surgical dressings. <laughs> what a great time <laughs> to be <win>. alive. <laughs> like, uh, GMAT, how many how many lives were saved because of that? I just can't even. It's so great. What a great invention. Yes. It's like at the, it's at the level of penicillin. You know, polio vaccine. All of that. Sanitizing. All good. Germ theory. Um... 1875, first dental college associated with a public university is founded at the University of Michigan, College of Dental Surgery. With the rise of understanding becomes the rise of education. So good. 1881, Listerine is moved into a uh, pharmacy situation rather than just a hospital uh, application of surgical antiseptic. Um, They license it to a local pharmacist and he starts marketing it. Uh, and it's promoted to dentists for oral care in 1895. Uh, 1882, Willoughby D. Miller discovers that microorganisms cause dental decay, so finally we can get rid of the worm theory. (laughs) (laughs) And as um, I don't see much of a difference in what toothbrushes are made out of from the time we get horsehair and bone, that's pretty much Mm -hmm. the standard for a very long time. You just sort of add the supplementary, like, floss and other care. 1902. And this might be, like, something you don't know, but, like, at what point do people actually start brushing their teeth? Like, the the difference between, like, this being a thing that's available and, like, people doing it pretty regularly. Pretty regularly is varied. Um, it's definitely, like, an elite item because there is some, like, wear and tear and things like that. And you have to have the, like, pigs and stuff. Like, the the common man is probably not brushing his teeth. Because I also see there's, there is a tie-in with, like, how fancy your toothbrush is. So a lot of the ones we have are the fancy ones. We don't see the common mm-hmm. man's that one. Makes sense. We see Napoleon's toothbrush in the museum. Legit. It's, like, hand-carved <laughs> and, like... You know how they would take, and there's also like um, elite items, so like ivory, you know, that you can carve really well. Yeah. So there's some, when they're bone based and stuff like that, um, there's like little miniatures carved into the handle of them and things like that. Uh, But in terms of like understanding how often they're brushing, it's not clear. I assume every day, but um, I don't have evidence of that necessarily. 
Polan's toothbrush is wild. It's like silver opium-based toothpaste. So yeah, so like the brief like truncated history of toothpaste, I guess as a material to use as well. So we have the brush in existence as well. Um, There's evidence that people would use kind of whatever they could find that was crumbled down powder fine enough. So there's evidence of like burnt breadcrumbs at times in like the early 1800s. Um, in 1824, a dentist named Dr. Peabody adds soap, and uh, later on, the, the soap was replaced by lo- sodium lauryl sulfate, which is in our materials today as, like, a sudsizing, you know, vibe. But uh, I'm not even sure, like, how old baking soda is, but baking soda even today we see in our toothpaste, um, but it's been around that sodium bicarbonate as a, an all-around cleaning tool for quite at least the industrial age Mm -hmm. 1791 french chemists made sodium carbonate um or soda ash and that as that sort of yields a lot of cleaning power i think it sort of makes it logical because it is such a fine abrasive Mm -hmm. frankie i need you to not be such a pain why are you not letting me talk chalk is used in horror i told you about that in the 1800s um the first kind of paste, good smelling paste, is created by Colgate and sold in tiny glass jars in 1873. And I'm sure he got in a go with Sears Roebuck and they shipped it all across the land. But as similar to like shampoo powder at the time, I think, you would kind of mix it into a paste and then put it in your teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1892, the first collapsible toothpaste tube is sold and that sort of changes the game. Uh, 1914 is when they start realizing fluoride should be added because of its many benefits to teeth in preventing tooth decay. Because as, as you said, like the combination of toothbrushing, uh, not eating a bunch of sugar, fluoride, and also your like genetic predisposition, all of those factors, um, have an impact on the rate of tooth decay in your life. 1987, edible toothpaste is invented by NASA for astronauts to brush in space without spitting. Oh, interesting. It continues to be used today by children while they are still learning how to brush. Because before that, you shouldn't, you shouldn't really swallow toothpaste. Yes, that I know. And so I guess for a long time, we were all just risking it because what a nightmare. But um, yeah, you can't just be spitting around the space shuttle. So, and as a, so, so now kids can learn to brush at a younger age, too, because there's less risk involved when they can just, you know, eat it. And positive association. They make them bubblegum flavored now. It's all great. Very nice. Uh, the last kind of first for toothpaste is 1989 when the first marketing toothpaste uh, for whitening is sold by Rembrandt. Yeah, here's a fascinating thing. So in the 30s, 20s and 30s is... Um, where you also see, like, the invention of nylon and the plastics, mm-hmm. and that changes the toothbrush game. So, 1938, the first nylon bristles are, bristles are sold and sort of replace the animal product version of those bristles. They were using boar bristles up until 1930s. Um, they're easier to obtain, they're easier to manufacture, and that makes it, the cost uh, equation kind of goes out the window and everybody can start brushing their teeth in a different way. So with the invention of that sort of mass production, you can make a cheap version for the regular Joe. Um, but it's genuinely, yeah, it's genuinely not until like 20th century. Um, and then the other thing I saw that was interesting is these two world wars that occur. That is where you see 
this shift in oral hygiene, especially for American soldiers, because it's almost like the army and the, the government, the, um, the armed forces sort of figured out standard practice. And one of those standard practices with all of the branches of uh, armed forces is like cleanliness and upkeep and hygiene. There's a standard look. There's a standard way of making your bed. There, everything's clean and tip-top shape, right? And um, you're drilled on that. And one of the things they started adding, uh, I think after World War One, when they saw other countries and what they did, and then you influence it into your own armed forces, and then it was just sort of expanded with World War Two, is like the addition of good oral hygiene to the to the roster. Mm-hmm. Um, both with the nylon bristles becoming a thing, every soldier can have a toothbrush, floss, and all of that stuff. It sort of impacts all of the armed forces, and when all of the soldiers come home, they impact their families by showing, like, this is what good teeth is. And so you sort of see the change in dental hygiene in the mid-century. Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, a standard practice of, like, you brush twice a day and you floss. Also at this time, so they were using wax silk for floss from the time it was invented, as it seemed like that was the best way, but there's a cost prohibition there. Um, and especially in World War II, there's a silk shortage because of all of the embargoes and things like that. So nylon also comes forth and they start making floss. And that also changes the game. So now everybody can use it. So everybody's teeth health just kind of skyrockets in the 50s. Yeah, 20th century, it's all about fluoride, whether it's good, whether it's bad, everybody freaks out about it. By the way, it's good. <laughs> we should have it. Uh, super helps your teeth. What's the, like, the Parks and Rec episode where they're trying to get fluoride in the water and they call it, like, H2 flow or something like that? H2 flow, yeah. And they, yeah, they think it's a poison and they have to convince them that fluoride's actually really good for your teeth. I'm not a dentist. I'm not a doctor. But my doctors and dentists say that it's great. So, modern teeth. So, what I found fascinating is the original teeth cleaning apparatus uh, in the form of chewing sticks is still in use today in a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is cultural touchstone and like what you grew up using, but also the World Hor- the World Health Organization advocates that in countries that cannot access like dental care in the same way that industrialized countries can, like these are a perfectly suitable um, use and should be encouraged by communities and and they are also now going into like everything as a circle they're actually like doing research in these communities too where there's not a lot of like issue with using them it's not any worse you know it's 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 not to say like they have sparkling clean straight teeth but decay is at a level when they're using a chewing stick that's not any disproportionate to like using a toothbrush Toothbrush to chewing stick isn't that bad of a drop-off. So they specifically studied this one kind of stick which is used on the African continent called a Mizwek branch. And when properly used, it had been reported to be as effective as toothbrushing from a standard toothbrush. Apart from their antibacterial activity, which may help control the formation and activity of dental plaque, they can be used effectively as a natural toothbrush for teeth cleaning. Such sticks are effective, inexpensive, common, available, and contain many medical properties. So there's also some cases where some of the sticks that they happen to choose have, like, naturally occurring um, minor antiseptics and antibacterials. 
within the plant itself. Oh, very cool. So it's sort of like we as wonderful cave people way back when or whenever we started dealing with our teeth, which I, I meant to look up to, like, what are the, what do other animals do? Like, is it a human thing? Because we have these big molars and canines and all these kinds of different kinds of teeth. So do other primates that have similar teeth have to deal with teeth cleaning? Um, but we see it in dogs. Dogs chew bones. Dogs chew sticks. And that helps with their teeth as well. So did one see the other and impact the other or vice versa? Or is it a natural like um, instinct to want to clean back there and get stuff out of your teeth? I don't know. But I did find it interesting that over time people observed other people using different kinds of sticks and realized, like, these sticks don't hurt my gums. And also, oh, when I use them, like, I notice that I don't get as many holes in my teeth as you do. Or, like, I have better smelling breath. And the better smell actually associates with, like, this antibacterial product that's in the in the stick. So you can actually buy, I don't recommend this. I don't want to advocate this, but these are for sale online now. Like you could get them and try them if you wanted, if you're looking for a, as we look forward as to the eco-friendly version of whatever our future is, Mm -hmm. I did find it fascinating that these are wildly available, super cheap, and for the most part, fine as a brush. Yeah. If you don't want to buy a plastic toothbrush anymore, I wonder how long until we get like the Etsy version of a Mizwax stick. I'm not surprised if it'll be next month. Yeah, and the fascinating thing too with if you think about it, you have like a I think they're like, you know, toothbrush length, 6 to 8 inches or so. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that what the proportion? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, sure. And then as you use it, you just kind of cut the end off when it's a little worn down and you fray the new end. And you can sort of use the whole stick. And it's biodegradable. Oh, I think cool. there's something to be said for We got to start cracking this puzzle wide open. For all you entrepreneurs out there, start looking into like compostable, reusable toothbrush. Yes. Because that like is one of the things that I, in my quest to like have less waste and less plastic in my life, I still have not found like a great replacement for my plastic toothbrush. No, I've tried the bamboo ones, but even then I think that it's still not totally biodegradable. There has to be something though. We The fact that we can make like plastic bags that are compostable and mm-hmm. plastic straws that are corn based. Like if we know a toothbrush has like a three month shelf life, like what is the version of compostable of that? Same, same with floss. Yeah, it must be doable. Yeah. Or do you just like have a permanent flosser? Like that doesn't that doesn't read as creepy to me. No, you just would have to clean it like you clean anything else. Yeah. And like I do know like the problem with toothbrushes is like you want a soft you want a soft brush because you don't want to irritate. You want to clean but not irritate. There's a fine line. So, finding something that has the wherewithal to be used for a long term versus like soft enough to be used on your teeth and gums is the great divide. Yeah. But there's a market for it, people. So get researching your Mizwax sticks, licorice sticks, some oak versions, I think. Every country has a version, though, of a chewing stick, which I find fascinating. So that's dentistry and toothpaste and toothbrushes. That's really cool. I, yeah. I ha- don't think I had realized like how long the toothbrush had been around. I guess I, I guess I had assumed it was like a much more recent invention. Yeah, I was super encouraged about it where I was just like, oh, I love that the thing that we started using, people still use today. That shows like, I don't know what it shows. It's just kind of fascinating to me. I think it, right, at least like in the comparison of the two things we've talked about, like 
one way of dealing with a particular human bodily function has changed so radically in the last, you know, couple hundred years. And this other one, we we kind of got it right pretty early on. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really, I think, cool to see that, like, not all not all past knowledge has necessarily been replaced by newer, better things. Like, we might have, like, a more effective toothpaste or something. Yeah, and, like, maybe this... Well, and weirdly enough, its next evolution can borrow from the original blueprint Yeah. for what we need it to be now. Like, we sort of exercised all of the technology, which is, like, we know we need to brush our teeth. It needs to kind of be this size and this softness. Okay, now we need to make one that's eco-friendly. Like, that's its last journey, in a way. Like, how do we modernize the chewing stick (laughs) to be as biodegradable and eco-friendly and wildly wildly available yeah that's the other thing like you just you could grow like a lot of communities will grow their own patch in their garden and that's where they pull from Mm -hmm. so that kind of future is intriguing to me and i think where a lot of um forward-thinking people are where it's just like we need to have more of a cyclical relationship with these goods that we use all the time a more thoughtful kind of that's the thing that t- I'm taking away more than anything with all of these hygienic products. Like, that's where I feel the need to be more green than ever. Yeah. Because we're at a level of cleanliness that I feel good about. <laughs> but I don't want to backtrack on the cleanliness at the cost of the planet or vice versa, you know? Mm-hmm. And we're only going to get more people. So we got to sort it out now because there's just going to be more people using toilet paper. So we got to... S- we gotta get situated about what we're gonna do about it. Yeah, and it is right. It is the thing. It's like it, it touch like it's the thing we touch every day. It is like the most present in our life, and it's also the thing that we do have the most power to change. It's like a lot of these other big environmental problems are like way beyond our power as consumers to fix. So we didn't talk about the Great Stink. We didn't do. Do we want to talk about the Great Stink? So what I love about that. Why you might know about the Great Stink is that there was a picture, I don't know who made it, there was a great, um, I guess it was in a newspaper of the time, the Silent Highwayman, who's like um, Mm. a skeleton in a cloak looking like, you know, death on the river, and he's in a little, he's in a little boat with oars, and he's going across the Thames at the time, but he's sort of like indicative of the disgusting nature of the river at that time i forget where it was published but it became images of it on google and it's just like incredibly evocative yeah so then it's it's now famous because here i'll share my screen with you if i may so then one of our favorite street artists of the modern era kind of did an homage to it mm-hmm. and Banksy put it on the side of a boat in the River Thames, I believe. Oh, that's amazing. Kind of evoking the same image. Isn't that cool? Very cool. So it sort of brought back like, oh, we're polluting our main waterway. We've done this before. Also, there was art about it in the same way. Yeah. And the quote under the Silent Highway Man, your money or your life. So mm-hmm. that's how I knew about the Great Stink. Um, Pretty gross. And yeah, it was apparently just a really wretched summer in London. And it was just particularly disgusting. Yes. And it's what leads then to the creation of London's like modern sewer system. Because people just are like, we can't live like this. 
Which is correct, you can't. It's really unhealthy. It's sort of like the, the Industrial Revolution caught up with itself, and the population of the city doubled in 50 years. Yeah. So it just, it didn't have anywhere to go. Oh, and there was a heat wave that year. That was the other thing. Heat never helps in those kinds of situations. But then it also became very clear, like, oh, yeah, you know, and I think germ theory starting at this time or cleanliness is changing in terms of perspective. So everyone is kind of aware. Micro, micro, uh, microscopes are invented <laughs> and you could start looking at the water under a microscope. So everyone's kind of like, oh, maybe we maybe we should work on that. Yeah. And I forget when they discover that cholera is transmitted through water. That's like the big shift too. And it's because a guy finds it in the well water and he like backtracks to everybody that had a cholera outbreak drank from this well. Mm -hmm. So we know the well water is contaminated. Where's it contaminated from? Oh, it's getting all of its sewage dumped in it. So sewage creates cholera. Boom. Yeah. Figured it out. It's odd. John Snow. Yeah. And he figures that out in, like, right around the same time as the Great Stink, like 1855. Yeah. It's all tied together. Because you're also, for the first time, having these, like, public, uh, air, well, not that wells are new, but, like, little uh, localized, like, whole communities go to one space um, and also dispose of their waste in the same way. Yeah. And it's, like, it's also sort of this development of like data visualization and thinking sort of statistically he like looks he like basically creates data about these people who are dying of cholera and then looks for common commonalities between them Mm -hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways it's sort of similar tools to what Florence Nightingale was using Mm. we talked about like her use of like information visualization he's doing similar things but with maps and by like mapping where the cases are is able to see that like the wells are the central point for that here, I'm going to show you one more cartoon. What is this? It says Monst- monster soup, commonly called Thames water. And it's just the, it's this image of this like sort of older woman. Like she's holding like a magnifying glass. Yeah. And in the magnifying glass, it's just these like monstrous things. And she's dropped her teacup. I don't know if you can see that. Um, microcosm dedicated to the London water companies. So it's sort of like all the sort of creepy crawlies that you would see in your water at this time oh that is grim evocative and helpful yes glad we have largely moved past that so anyway as i drink my water from my brita filter tonight i thank all of our predecessors that realized that it's the only way to go and i'm super grateful well this was really fun i was really glad i'm glad we finally got around to like doing the hygiene episodes yeah isn't it ironic that as we were talking about shampoo the other day my mom has converted to shampoo and conditioner bars and she loves them. That's amazing. So I think as soon as I run out of whatever I have in my shower already, I'm going to, I'm going to convert and I'll let you know. That's my plan as well. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I like slipped it to the fam. I was like, if you guys need Christmas present ideas, yeah. Bar shampoo and conditioner. Bar shampoo, would conditioner, any other kind of like eco-friendly bathroom life I would be open to. Yeah. And kitchen. Yeah, that's my other, that's my perpetual thing is like how to be more sustainable in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I have reusable Ziplocs. Well, they're not Ziplocs. Same. Reusable bags in that way. Yeah. Those are great. I want to get ones that can stand up. Mm. That are like, what's the word for on the bottom where they have a base? Yeah. Because I think that would be handy. Oh, that would be really cool. Yeah, I have the like this, just the silicone ones that mm-hmm. are reusable, Same. but they are just like little baggies. 
Yeah, they're great. Yeah, maybe we bring maybe we interview Catherine, who like does all the zero waste stuff in her kitchen. Yeah, she does. Okay, cool. Till next time. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions of people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen, Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. And thank you for listening to Missing History.